morning. morning. Thanks to the choir for doing the uh, All You Need Is Love song. I appreciate that. That was my request, and you did did a great job. Uh, And Carol Sue agrees. (laughs) So, if we're going to talk about love, we have to begin by talking about sin. (laughs) Right. There's no reason for that, but you'll see it works. It works. It works. So I mentioned the word sin. Roger starts to boo. So liberals tend to boo sin. The more fundamental you get, the more you embrace sin. Not that you want to do it, but like you embrace the concept of sin, and you notice where everyone else is doing it, and ignore, of course, where you're doing it. But let's let's talk about sin. What sin is? So here's my definition of sin. Sin is a cultural construct. Right? It's a narrative. There's no such thing as a sin that everyone actually accepts as sinful. So, for example, let's say today, Sunday, last week, was Yom Kippur. So I think Yom Kippur, I don't remember anymore. I think Yom Kippur fell on a Wednesday. Could be wrong, but I think it was Wednesday. And you're not supposed to eat on Yom Kippur. So if you do eat on if you're a Jew, obviously, if you do eat on Yom Kippur, that's a sin. If you're a Jew, if you're a Methodist and you go out and have a double cheeseburger, no one cares. <laughs> it's not a sin unless the community defines it as a sin. It's a cultural construct. The same thing with almost every sin you can think of. It all has to be according to a tradition. So... It used to be a sin to eat meat on Friday if you were a Catholic. But if you were a Jew, you could have meat on Friday as long as it was kosher meat. (laughs) Then the church decided, you know, who could live without meat on a Friday? So they gave that up, and you're allowed to eat meat on Friday. Which means it wasn't a sin. It was simply something designated as sinful by an authority. And when the authority changes its mind... It's no longer a sin. Every sin is like that. There's probably nothing we can think of that is universally sinful. Even something like murder. You say it's not right to murder someone. But there's always an unless that comes after it. Unless they're your enemy. Unless they're a terrorist. Unless they really, really tick you off. (laughs) Right? I mean, the Bible doesn't even say... In the Bible, the Ten Commandments says, in many of our English translations, you shall not kill. But the Hebrew says only, you shall not murder. But then it allows for all kinds of murdering in other parts of the Bible. It's as if the people who wrote the other parts of the Bible never got around to reading the Ten Commandments. Or if they did, they didn't recognize that what they were doing or calling for was murder. There's a great story in the Bible. There's a lot of great stories in the Bible. Most of them are really perverted, and that's what makes them great. So there's a story in the Bible about this woman named Cosby and her boyfriend named Zimri. And the setting is this. Moses is giving a speech to the people. And the topic of the speech is Jewish guys, well, Jews, shouldn't hang out and and marry Moabites. Now he was most concerned with Jewish men and Moabite women. 
because there must have been something about Moabite women that just really was attractive to Jewish men. The Bible doesn't say. So you've got to set the scene. So, so you're all the Israelites out there, right? And I'm Moses, and I'm saying, <clears throat> do not cavort with Moabite women. And then behind me, where I can't see, but you can, there are these two people. There's Cosby, who was a Moabite woman, and there's Zimri, who was an Israel, Israelite, a Jewish man. And the two of them are lovers, and they're walking behind Moses, and they're going into a tent over there to have sex. So, now, I don't think any of these stories are history. I think someone was writing this, and it was sort of a comedy, and you could sort of imagine Moses very stern, and the two of them right behind him. So everyone else sees them but Moses. Everyone ignores them, except this one guy named Pincus. So Pincus gets outraged that here's this Jewish guy and a Moabite woman about to have intercourse, the exact thing that Moses said they weren't supposed to do. So Zimri, who supposedly has read the Ten Commandments, takes a spear and he races after the two of them, bursts into the tent, and stabs them when they're having intercourse through their genitals. One stab goes through the genitals of both of them, and they die. That's murder, right? So what does God do? Well, God must, of course, condemn him, because that's a terrible sin. No, God bestows upon him what's called the covenant of peace. (laughs) and elevates him to be the head, after Aaron, of the priesthood. Now, it depends how you imagine these stories are written. One way to imagine the story is someone who hates the priesthood wrote this story to show you that those GD priests are all SOBs and murderers. So we shouldn't listen to them. That's one way to read the story. The other way to read the story is someone was off their meds. And they just wrote a nutty story. But my point is, it was a sin to do that until it wasn't. And the reason it wasn't was it was in a different cultural context. It was okay to murder people if they were having intercourse between two different tribes. You know, Israelites and Moabites. That was no longer considered murder. Though the Ten Commandments does not make any distinction. So that's, that's where I want to start. That sin is a cultural construct. As the society changes, sin changes. And maybe we'll get to a point, as we'll see shortly with the Tao Te Ching, that maybe there is no sin. Okay, but let's stick with sin for a while. So there is sin. In Jesus' time, the rabbis ask their fellow rabbi Jesus, and they say, Rabbi, what is the most important commandment in the Torah, the five books of Moses? So, Jesus cites, first he cites two. He says there are two of them. First he cites Deuteronomy 6, 5, which says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, uh, with all your soul. With all your heart, all your might, and all your soul. And then he says, and there's another one, which is love your neighbor as yourself. And he says those two are uh, corollaries. They go together. If you love God, you have to love your neighbor. And perhaps even the other way around, if you love your neighbor, you're actually loving God. That's, that's it. Now, he's quoting from an older Jewish sage, uh, maybe a generation earlier, a guy named Hillel, who, when asked the same question, answers with a similar 
response, saying, that which is hateful to you, don't do to somebody else. That's the entire Torah. Jesus is putting it in, the, in this context of love. Hillel, before him, puts it in the context of compassion. But they're both saying, this is the entire Torah. They could have, given that the Torah has so many sin commandments, they could have said, don't do X. That's the most important thing. But they didn't. They put it in, in terms of getting along, compassion, love. Later in Christianity, you get uh, St. Augustine. Augustine has a sermon on love. That's what it's called, sermon on love. And in the sermon on love, Augustine says, love and do what you want. Later on, Aleister Crowley takes that idea. And, right, Aleister Crowley, the most evil man in the world, according to the Brits at the time of Aleister Crowley's life, early, 20, uh, earliest, early to mid um, 20th century, Aleister Crowley says, love is the law. Love under will. Or it starts out, do what you will is the whole of the law. Love is the law. Love under will. So he, you know, um, Augustine just says, love and do what you want. Crowley says, love has to be under will. Though I'm not exactly sure what, what will means in that context. But all of them, Hillel, Jesus, um, and again, Jesus quotes in the Bible, which is older than both of them. So you could say the Bible and, and Hillel and Jesus and Augustine and Crowley are all saying, right, you don't put them all, you don't put them all in the same sentence. Yeah, I get that. But they're all saying love is all you need. That's it. And the Beatles. <laughs> right? Love is all you need. But is it? Is it? If sin is a cultural construct, could love, compassion, also be a cultural construct? Is there a, a, a construct-free notion of love? Or is it always shaped by some sense of what's kosher and what's not? I mean, we're going to discuss this, and you can think about it, and we'll talk about it and talk back. But I'm going to suggest that whether you're talking about sin or you're talking about love, we're always talking within the context of some narrative, some greater understanding that defines these terms. And every religion does that with one exception. Then There may be others. I just don't know them. But the one exception I know is Taoism. So, luckily for you... So just t- I'll take a second and, and you can make sure everyone has one of these. <clears throat> so this is chapter 38 of the Tao Te Ching. So the Tao Te Ching is the foundational philosophical document of Taoism. It's written according to legend by Lao Tzu, which is just a title. It means old one. So this guy Lao Tzu, who's the opposite of Confucius, they were contemporaries, Confucius is older I think, could be the other way around, but they're contemporaries and Confucius is all about rules. Confucius says if we're going to get along, we all have to follow the same set of rules. 
Lao Tzu says, no, rules are actually the problem. We have to free ourselves from that. Or, as I'm putting it, free ourselves from these cultural constructs. Lao Tzu gets, makes no headway in China, so he leaves. He, he gets on, a, on an ox and rides out of the province where he lives to go live by himself in, the, in, in obscurity. But he gets to the, the border of his province, and he's stopped by a guard, and the guard recognizes him, and the guard says, I will not let you leave until you write down what we need to know from you, your wisdom. So he writes down 81 very short, often enigmatic poems. I'm not sure he would call them that, but poems. And this is the philosophical foundation of Taoism. There's magical Taoism, where the Taoists are are looking for immortality, and one of the ways they do that is they eat jade powder, which is actually, (laughs) it it actually kills you. (laughs) So, bad, bad idea. Eat this, you'll live long. Oh, (laughs) right? So, but this is philosophical Taoism. And after Lao Tzu, generations later, you get maybe maybe an even greater philosophical master called Chuangzu, who writes in way more enigmatic fashion, not poems, but odd parables and stories. This is from the foundation of the book, the Tao Te Ching. So Tao means the way the universe operates. Day is power, and Ching is, is classic. So it just means, like when you say Shakespeare is a classic, that would be Shakespeare is a Qing. So, or a Jing, actually. So, so it's really about the way and its power, the classic about the way and its power. So this is chapter 38, the entire chapter, so you can see they're not long. How many of you have read the Tao Te Ching? Okay, not, not everybody. So I, my strong suggestion is after you go and buy a copy of Spork, that you should also get a copy of the Tao Te Ching. And there are a lot of interesting translations. Uh, Stephen Mitchell is one I like very much. Uh, this, is, this one is, is a very famous one published by, one, by Random House, uh, by Guy Fu Feng um, and Jane English. But there's, there's lots of them. Okay, let's just go through this. Truly good people are not aware of their goodness. And they're therefore good. Think of it this way. Truly good people are not aware of the idea of goodness, and that's why they're good. They're not working in a cultural construct. Foolish people try to be good, good as defined by their society, and are therefore not good even if they meet the standards of the society. I mean, it starts out with that radical antinomian idea that Love, goodness, sin are all cultural constructs and you've got to be free from them. Truly good people do nothing and nothing is left undone. Foolish people are always doing and yet remains and yet much remains to be done. All right, so the good people are just being there. The foolish people are trying to make the world conform to their construct. And they never succeed. The good people don't need the world to conform to anything. The world just does what it does, all by itself. When truly good people do something, they leave nothing undone. When foolish people do something, sorry, 
they leave a great deal to be done. When disciplinarians do something and no one responds, they roll up their sleeves to enforce order. Right? So you get, you know, the, the, the good is enforced by the church or enforced by the state or enforced by your teacher or enforced by your guru, whatever it is. And if you don't follow, <clears throat> all right, I guess got to make this work. And they're really going to double their efforts. Lao Tzu is trying to tell you that people who work hard at this are really don't know what they're doing. And what they're definitely not doing is the very thing they claim they are doing. Therefore, when Tao is lost, so remember, Tao is just the natural way of reality. When Tao is lost, then there is goodness. When Tao is lost, then there's goodness. I mean, they didn't put the then in there, but it should be. When the Tao is lost, then there is goodness. Tao is the natural. When we lose the natural, we already create an unnatural construct, and that's where goodness comes in. It's not the real with a capital R. It's just what we impose. When goodness is lost, there's kindness. When kindness is lost, there's justice. When justice is lost, there's ritual. Now, ritual is the husk of faith and loyalty, the beginning of confusion. So when you lose the natural, you grasp onto something that seems right, and that's goodness. If you lose the sense of what's good, you go, oh, I'll just be nice. I'll be kind. If you can't do that, if you've lost what that meaning of that, then you go for something more concrete, maybe, called justice. But all these things are defined by a system larger than you. Right? When we have you know, people chanting in the street, no justice, no peace, for everyone who's chanting in the street about the lack of justice, there are other people you know, uh, on Fox News, but also <laughs> chanting in other streets, saying, no, this is exactly justice. Right? When, you know what I'm saying? I mean, it just it isn't, there's no, there's no shared definition of what's just. So we impose some kind of justice. And how do you impose it? You impose it through power. So whoever's, on, whoever's got the power decides what's just. If you don't have justice, you go for ritual. Now that one sometimes is uh, hard to get. So... Think of ritual as, I was going to say, something like play acting, right? You're going through the motions. That's the phrase I'm looking for. You're going through the motions. It may look like it's just and good and kind, but you don't have a clue what those things are. You're just going through the motions. So that means maybe, for example, not eating on Yom Kippur. It's just a ritual. You're just doing it. It may not be linked to anything other than that's the law. That's the ritual. I don't do it. When uh, my mother-in-law, who's long deceased, when my mother-in-law was growing up, not even as a little girl, but even as as an adult, she grew up in a very Christian household, and she left the church because she wore, she was thrown out of the church, really, because she refused, I'm make a double negative, because she wore pants to church. That, that's what got her thrown out. It wasn't that she didn't believe. I mean, when I moved into her house, 
There were crucifixes everywhere. And the closer she got to death, there were more crucifixes everywhere. You know, for someone who never said a word about Jesus, I knew her since I was in high school. For someone who never spoke a word about Jesus, suddenly I was in a cross factory. They were everywhere. <laughs> because she was getting nervous. But she wouldn't go to church. Because they wouldn't let her wear pants. And she wasn't going to wear a dress just to fit in. It was a sin in those days in that church to wear pants. Now, it wasn't a sin to wear pants elsewhere. It certainly wasn't a sin for men to wear pants. <clears throat> it was the opposite, right? In some places, if a man, man didn't wear pants, that was the sin, right? So in some places, pants, good. Other places, on men. Other places for men, pants, you know, okay, but a dress is bad. It was just, it's all cultural construct. So when we lose everything else, we just go with ritual. Just do this, because this is what you're supposed to do. Now, ritual, Lao Tzu says, is the husk of faith. What does that mean, the husk of faith? What husk of faith? Husk is the dead outside. Right? Now, you may need a husk. Ritual may serve a point if, and in fact, allows us to embody the kernel inside. If your ritual does, in fact, lead you to live a life of, you know, we could, we could go up, you know, justice and kindness and goodness, or maybe what's beyond that, which we'll come to, then the ritual has a place. But if all you have is ritual, then it's just a hollow action. It's the husk of faith. It's also the husk of loyalty. That's, that's even harder. To, I, I'm husk of faith, I understand that. Husk of loyalty. Loyalty to whom? to the powers that establish whatever the cultural construct is that you're trying to fake, right? That you're trying to mimic. Because if you're just faking it, you're not really loyal to it. If your society says do X, and you just have an action that has no heart in it, then you're not really connected to the the meaning behind it. You're just going through the motions. That does not express, according to Lao Tzu, loyalty to the community. Even though it looks right on the outside. And, he says, it's the beginning of confusion. Because we ask, why are we doing this stuff? There's no point to it if we've lost uh, goodness and kindness and justice and what was greater than all of those. If we've lost all that stuff, there's no point to it. We don't know why we're doing it. We're just doing it. In the Passover Seder, in in the traditional liturgy, there's a part of the Passover Seder where you talk about four kids and they each each ask questions about what what we're doing. And there's one who, who... just wants an explanation of something that they, that kid seems to believe in. Then there's another one who's a little confused. I don't know what this is all about. Tell me what this is. And there's another one who is so young, doesn't even know what question to ask. And then there's the evil one who just said, who, who disassociates from the communal event and says, what are you people doing? From the perspective of Lao Tzu, that's the most important one. The person who says, what are you doing? It's the person who says, the emperor has no clothes. You know, it's Toto, Dorothy's dog Toto, who pulls the curtain back on the great and terrible wizard to reveal a little man with a large megaphone. What are you doing? And he's, or she is evil because 
they are pulling back the curtain. They are admitting what everyone knows but no one can say. The emperor has no clothes. You follow, you follow that? So it's the beginning of confusion. Once that is out there, we're all confused about what to do. Therefore, luckily, <laughs> luckily he's got one more verse. <coughs> Therefore, the truly good people dwell on what is real. Now, what's real is the Tao. And not what is on the surface. On the fruit and not the flower. Therefore, accept the one and reject the other. The truly good person, which in Chinese is, is literally the person of no rank, R-A-N-K, the person of no rank, the person of no title, the person who doesn't represent anyone or anything, the person who has no, no ism or ideology. That's what they mean by truly good people, as opposed to people who are simply Good, because they, they're mimicking some idea of goodness. The truly good person is a person free from all the isms and ideologies, a person who has no title, no rank. The person of no rank dwells on the real, on the Tao. And the Tao, we know from the first, cha- first poem, the first chapter, the first verse of the first chapter, is un ineffable, unnameable, because Lao Tzu writes, the Tao that can be named isn't it. If you've got a philosophy of the Tao, the philosophy is wrong. The Tao cannot be reduced to ideas and ideologies. So when he says that the person of no rank, or what she's, they're calling the truly good person, the, the persons of no rank dwell on the ineffable. They free themselves from all the definitions and simply are awake to, awake in, awake as Tao. From that state, Lao Tzu will say elsewhere, and Chuangzi says, and philosophical Taoism says in general, from that place of dwelling on and in the Tao, you know exactly what to do, but you don't need a label for it. You don't need a guidebook. You don't need commandments. You don't need vows. You don't need affirmations. You don't need anything. You simply know what to do because you're aware of what the situation actually is as opposed to how it's being defined by the powers that be. That's why I titled this, All You Need Is Love, or or Love Is All You Need, or Is It? Because even love is a construct. You need something else. You need to free yourselves from all of these constructs and dwell on what is real and not on what is on the surface, meaning the narratives that define things for us. Dwelling on what's real is dwelling on the fruit and not the flower. The flower is a distraction. The fruit is what, is what matters. The fruit is the truth. Therefore, accept the real, accept the fruit, accept the truth, and reject everything that isn't that. And that is very hard to do. That is really hard to do because how do you function in a world that is defined by various powers setting these narratives? How do you live in that world when you can't belong to any of those defined, you don't, you don't fit into any of those defined norms and you can't belong to any of those defined and defining groups? So what do you do? You come to talk back. <laughs> And you tell me what you do. I don't know. 
But that's the challenge. That's why the Taoist doesn't have, I mean, there are Taoist churches, but they're not Lao Tzu. They're, they're not philosophical. That's why Lao Tzu gets on his, don- on his uh, ox and rides off to be alone. Because you can't build an institution that defines these narratives of right and wrong and good and evil and, and uh, right behavior and sin. You can't create that kind of institution when you're dwelling in and on the Tao. It doesn't allow for that. Does that mean there's no community? I don't think so, but we'll talk about that. Does that mean you're isolated and you're just like a hermit? I don't think that's necessarily what follows, but again, we will talk about that. Because anything else, well, this is a little strong, but still, anything else is a lie that must be rejected. The only thing that matters is the Tao, reality with a capital R, truth with a capital T, and goodness, love, justice, ritual conformity. It's all a distraction from the truth. So I'm going to end it there. If I had... (laughs) I would invite the, the, the choir to come back and sing, All you need is love. Well, maybe not all you need... (laughs) 